So to give you a little bit of context, a few months ago, me and Patrick were talking about um, sermon series coming up and when I can fill in. I'm, I, I'm trying to, you know, get into a rhythm and see what this would be like uh, to preach regularly. Um, and so as we were going through the list, it got to Luke 12, 22 through 34, which was on it. And I thought to myself, well, I've literally just preached that passage of presbytery three weeks prior. So out of the goodness of my heart, I said, Patrick, I'll take that one. Um, I know it's big of me to preach a sermon I've already prepared. Um, so you get to hear a version of that sermon today. The one at Presbytery uh, was only 15 minutes long, so uh, some of you are really disappointed that I'm going longer than that. Um, but I'm going to flesh it out more today. Um, before we begin the passage today, I want to give you a clear path as to where we're going. Um, the passage before us is Luke 12, 22 through 34. And as you will see, this is really the yang to the ying of Luke 12, 13 through 21. So to effectively give you today's passage, you have to understand what came before it. Um, there is a modern parable that I'm going to give to you today that I think ties the two passages together really well. So for today's sermon, instead of three points, you're going to get three parts um, part one is going to set the stage of the text before us today. Um, it gives you what comes before Luke 12, 22 through 34. We then will examine what Jesus has to say in the main text in part two. And then part three will be kind of an epilogue of how we are to deal with it. So let me pray and let me begin and then we'll begin our message today. Father God, we are prone to pity those around us that we consider fools. But rarely, Lord, do we put ourselves in the place of the fool, even though we regularly seek the same things. Lord, as we examine the text today, may we see where we've gone off the path, where we've sought the same things of, that the people of the world do, and how we've not sought the kingdom of God. Lord, may we see that there are two lords, but one king. And may we not try to build our own kingdom, but may we seek yours. In your son's name, I pray. Amen. There lived a lord in a manor on a hill. And the lord loved beauty. He shared his love for beauty in two ways. One was for his love of art. He would buy and sell works of art and display them in his home. And every week, he would invite the public to view these works of art. He would give tours and show them the greats of England and continental Europe. And his guests would marvel at the beauty displayed on the canvas on the manor on a hill. The second way the Lord displayed beauty or showed beauty was in his gardens. Along with opening his home to the public, he opened up his gardens. And the Lord, in a manner on a hill, displayed beauty to the community he lived in. And he didn't do it alone. The Lord, in a manner on a hill, had two gardeners, brothers, who also loved beauty. The older brother was very practical. He understood how to take the visions of others and to relate them to the natural canvas that was outside. The younger brother was the visionary. The Lord leaned on the many ideas of the younger brother because they were so cutting edge. Yet when the Lord and the manor on the hill passed away, things began to unravel. 
While the gardeners were allowed to stay on the property, their fair inheritance left to the brothers by the Lord and the manor on a hill began to divide them. The younger brother thought he was getting a bad end of the bargain, and bitterness began to swell in his heart, and it began to affect the gardens and ultimately his relationship with everyone around him. For the younger brother, it was no longer beauty that drove him. It was worry, it was anxiety, and it was fear. Fear that what he had today would be gone tomorrow. Anxiety over not getting what he thought he deserved. Worry, anxiety, and fear. Part one of today's message tells us that if you've been breathing for any amount of time, you will have experienced these emotions. The unknown failure, and what-if paradigms of life drive us to worry, anxiety, and fear, and ironically, the known success and confidence paradigms of life drive us to the exact same things, because we will worry that we might not get what we want, and if we have something, we're just as likely to worry that we might lose it. We are a people who live in the midst of much beauty, but are quick to dismiss it as we focus on what we don't have. America is beautiful. It was founded on many of the ideas rooted in scripture, but it was also founded on the idea of the self-made person, individuality, and self-governance. It's why immigrants come here. They want to make something of themselves in a country that allows them to make something of themselves. And we are left in a society that is one of the most prosperous on the planet. We eat more than anyone else. We drink more than anyone else, we're drugged more than anyone else, we're addicted more than anyone else, not because we don't have, but because we do. And while politicians typically try to divide us between the haves and have-nots compared to the rest of the world, let's be honest, most of us just have too much. And it regularly does not lead to gratitude, but to hoarding and fear that it might not be there tomorrow. Today's passage addresses specifically this, because worry, anxiety, and fear are not 21st century problems. They're human problems. Our passage today is Luke 12, 22 through 34, and it begins with this. Jesus said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, and like any decent expositor will tell you, if there is a therefore at the beginning of the text, you have to ask, what is the therefore? Excellent. So let me bring you up to speed on where we are in the text. A crowd of people has come to hear what Jesus has to say at the beginning of chapter 1. And Jesus begins to weave together this story that goes all the way from uh, chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 13, verse 9. And it is a compare and contrast analogy that Jesus takes uh, takes place in the text. He is comparing what are our goals. Is it security? Is it comfort? Is it pleasure? Or is it the kingdom of God? Jesus is contrasting the Pharisee with the God follower, the hypocrite with the servant, the person building their own kingdom with the person serving the king. And our text today is directly linked to verses 13 through 21, where Jesus has been interrupted by a man who is trying to settle a monetary claim with his older brother. He is dealing with almost the identical issue that the younger brother is of the Lord on the manor on a hill. And Jesus uses this opportunity to speak to the heart of the man's issue, namely his belief that he doesn't have enough or what he is owed. 
that he worries that he won't be able to get by. Jesus speaks to the man by relating a parable of a man that simply has too much, essentially asking him, is this what you want? Jesus uses the parable and the adjacent teaching to compare and contrast the life of a man building his own kingdom and its consequences and the life of a man living for the kingdom of God and its consequences. The parable in 13 through 21 is short. I'll, I'll give you brief. It is about a rich man who has an, had a, an abundant year on the crop fields and has decided to store up treasures in new barns. And in his words, relax, eat, drink, and be merry, which might as well be the chief end of Americans, right? The rich fool in the parable is convinced that his bank account is full, his success account is full, his life account is full, not realizing that the credit built in those accounts was all on loan. The fool thinks his kingdom is secure. And then God says to the rich fool, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. The man built his own kingdom, and the man suffered the consequences. Jesus ends the parable there, but not the teaching. He turns to his disciples with the crowd still listening on, which leads to the text today and part two of today's sermon. Verse 22 begins, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow, is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old and with treasure in heavens that do not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. In our time today, in part two, I want to point out three points for you because I feel like I wouldn't be a good Presbyterian if I didn't give you three points. First point is in verses 21 through 28. And what we see here is this lesser to greater paradigm take place. Jesus uses what is known to his disciples to remind them that they are known to their Father in heaven. That if their God cares about the ravens, which, let's be honest, it's a filthy bird. And the lilies of the field, which are so common that, as I quoted in Isaiah 40, wither and fade. If he feeds the ravens, 
and clothes the lilies, how much more valuable are you to God? Any good father knows that he desires to take care of his children, and he will take care of us. God is for you. And while Jesus here is using the lesser to greater comparison, saying, if God feeds and clothes the ravens and the lilies, will he not feed and clothe you? We, in contrast, constantly, especially if you're like me, use the greater to lesser comparison. Because let's be real, I don't care about no ravens and I don't care about no lilies. You probably don't care about birds much either. Or flowers. Even those beautiful blue bonnets in Texas, right? But we do care about John and Jane Doe down the street. All the time. Lord, John got a new car. I, I don't even want a new car, Lord, right? I just want a car that my mechanic doesn't have a nickname for because he sees it so much. Lord, Jim Doe, John and Jane's kid, he got into an Ivy League school. I don't think my kid's getting into a Poison Ivy Junior College. Why can't I have Jim Doe as a kid? And let's not even talk about Jane Doe, right? We don't bring her up with the wife or the Lord. She's fine. She does like hot body yoga ninja warrior. And the reason we don't bring up Jane Doe is because, well, Jim Doe, well, John Doe, not Jim Doe too, but John Doe, his muscles are so defined, they made it into Webster's Dictionary. That's a good joke, y'all. You can laugh. <laughs> Lord, I want my life. I want, I'm sorry. Lord, I want their life, not mine. You made a mistake. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? When we compare greater to lesser, we are always of lesser value. And we always seem anxious because of it. And ironically, this is what kills us. Yet when we see our lives like Jesus sees our life through the eyes of the Son, lesser to greater, your value to God cannot be comprehended by anything in this life. And you see that you're no mistake. You, you are of such beauty. You, hear this. God is for you. And your suffering is a part of that. And your weaknesses are a part of that. Let him be your strength. Second point takes place in the next section in verses 29 through 31, which really constitutes the climax of Jesus' argument. It addresses the quest for security. Verse 29, And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. The practices he condemns are rooted in a false perception of the character of God. Those who know God as Father will know God as one capable of being committed to providing for his people. And knowing this, we're free from the consuming concerns of self-security. This should be a freeing statement, but we balk at this idea. We are all about security. 
401ks, government welfare, insurance policies on literally anything. You can get an insurance policy on literally anything in this country. And these aren't bad things in themselves. I'm not like slamming your local GEICO agent, okay? But if your head hits the pillow at night, you can go to bed quickly because your insurance policy is sound. Instead of resting in the care of your creator, then you have a problem. If our marriages are happy because there is money in the bank, not because they are rooted in the creator of marriage, then we might have a problem. Hear this. One type of security has an end date. The other type, only a beginning one. It's about two masters, two kings. One master leads the fool who tries to build his own kingdom. And the other master, who by his grace, rescues the fool. Similar statements in Matthew 6 point to this reality. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And money is not going with you into glory, but the master has our names written there. So where is your security? Where is your security? Are you trying to build your own little kingdom and build your, or are you building your life in a way that is directed towards his? Your kingdom can give you a false sense of security and his an eternal one. Point three takes us to verses 32 through 34, which comprise the section's conclusion. Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Point three is a very clear contrast between um, the passage before this one and the one we've just dealt with, between the fool who stores up his treasure in new barns and the saint who stores up his treasure in heaven. Notice the contrast between the ritual in the previous section and the directions of Jesus in this section. The fool believed that his good crop was his own fortune, a reflection of his good work. I'm a very good farmer. And it must be a blessing from the Lord. I've done, I've done good work, Lord. Thank you for the blessing. Now I get to enjoy it. And what does he do with it? He builds new barns. Joel B. Green in his commentary on Luke says, rather than building additional barns and thus taking up land that might otherwise be used for agricultural production in subsequent years, he elects to tear down his current storage facilities in order to make room for larger ones. He thus makes it clear that he does not plan to contribute to the current year's saturation of the market with a surplus, but will hold his harvest back in order to achieve a higher price when the market is not so glutted. He is focused on building his own kingdom and not God's, which is the main reason God calls him fool. Joel B. Green continues, the farmer has sought to secure himself and his future without reference to God. This is the force of the label given him by God, fool. He doesn't realize that it is his father's good pleasure to give him the kingdom because he is too busy building his own. 
Christ says, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that don't grow old, build up your treasure in heaven as you set your heart there. And instead, the fool hoards his belongings for another day because he's convinced he has one. And the fool says to himself, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. He seeks comfort relaxation, ease, good food, proper drink, and happiness, which simply sound like the gods of America, especially here in Frisco, where we have comfortable homes, relaxing man caves, minivans, ease of purchase with Amazon, good barbecue, the local breweries, and the naivety to call this happiness, to call this satisfaction to then turn around and worry and be anxious that that all might slip away. The gods of America drive worry, anxiety, and fear like they're luxury vehicles, but I can promise you the engine is a lemon. Why do we obsess over these things? And the answer is because we are so obsessed with our own kingdom that we miss the beauty of the Lord's kingdom. God is at work around us. And if you don't see that, then you either don't know how to, or God forbid you don't want to. Focusing on the wrong kingdom is what leads to worry, anxiety, and fear. And look, y'all, I'm not immune to that either. I am prone to worry that I will not have enough for tomorrow pretty much every day. I worry that I might need more. I need to accumulate more to be secure. And let me be, t- let me be real. That's insatiable, right? Like that doesn't, that doesn't, once you turn it on, you can't shut it off. Like lights on. We just always want a little bit no- more. It's never enough. Recently, it's all about the lawnmower, right? We got a new lawnmower two years ago. Now, the, uh, what's it called? The automatic drive and the wheels. Not so automatic anymore. I'm huffing, I'm puffing. Lord, if I just had a new lawnmower, I would be satisfied. Right? Or I'll be like, okay, if I can just put a little bit more in the 401k this year, then, then we'll be good on retirement. Lord, just a, just a little bit more. And, and it'll make me happy. That's my, yeah, that's the phrase, right? It'll make me happy, Lord. And then God whispers in my ear, no, it won't. And on the days that I like, actually don't talk back to him, I know it's true. I need to be reminded that the good father loves me more than the ravens and the lilies, and I need not worry. He is my satisfaction. Church, you need not worry. When you seek the kingdom of God, all these things, food and clothing, will be added to you. And when you need not worry about your kingdom, you can enjoy his. And how do we enjoy his? It says it in the text. By giving away what we don't need, by looking to the betterment of our neighbor, both his physical life and his soul, and know that your treasure is in heaven because Jesus is on the throne. To me, what is the most ironic thing about the whole passage comes back to the rich fool's monologue. This is, what, this is how he monologues. Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Look, I got my degree in theater. 
I know a good monologue when I see one, right? And this is an awful monologue. Across every culture, they would say this is a ridiculous, foolish monologue. Why? The fool is often caught in monologue. But the Spirit of God, he dialogues with his people. And the same thing the fool desires is what your heavenly Father freely gives you. He too desires us to relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But it will only happen when we see the world through the eyes of his son Jesus. Part three of the text today begins where part one began. There lived a Lord in a manor on a hill, and the Lord loved beauty. He shared his love for beauty in two ways. One was his love for art, and he would buy and sell works of art and display them in his home. And every week he would invite the public in to view these works. He would give tours and show them the greats of both England and continental Europe. And his guests would marvel at the beauty displayed on the canvas in the manor on the hill. Now, you already heard about the gardeners, but the Lord also had a son whom he loved, and that son, too, loved beauty, and he loved art. His son, under the tutelage of his father, had become a very good um, kind of art practitioner. He could read the markets in a way that he was able to buy and sell art that always brought a profit to the manor on a hill and at the same time always made it look more and more beautiful with the frescoes that would line its halls. There was a great relationship between the Lord and his son. It was a beautiful relationship. But then World War I hit. And when the Lord's connections with the government, the son could have passed on going to the front lines, but the son instead did what he called his duty, which was to bring back beauty to a broken world, and he went to the front lines. The son wrote weekly to his father until months later, the father received no more correspondence. Fear gripped his heart, and when he finally received word from the front line, it was that his son was missing in action. The Lord fell into deep, deep depression. He no longer walked the halls of the manor looking at the art because it reminded him too much of his son. And soon the tours closed and the house and the gardens fell into disrepair. Then Christmas came. There was a knock on the door. And since the workers at the manor on the hill were gone for the day, the Lord opened the door to find a young man standing there about the same age of his son. The first word, words out of the, son, the young man's mouth was, Merry Christmas, I served with your son on the front line, may I come in? The Lord was taken aback, but since the young men had come such a distance on a holiday, he brought him in and he fixed him tea. It was only when they were sitting that did the Lord notice the canvas-shaped gift that the young man had brought. The young man had been a friend of the Lord's son, and their friendship was built on a mutual love for art. They used to sit around the campfire telling stories and comparing their favorite artist and what made them so beautiful and what drove them to paint. And there was this young man who was forever grateful for the son saving him after he was shot in his lower back and in the process giving up his life for the son of the Lord in the manor on a hill. 
So the young man, being forever grateful, wanted to do something to honor the son. So he had painted a portrait. He was not an excellent artist by any means. Some might not even call him good, but he did paint. And that Christmas, the Lord on the manor on the hill opened up a portrait of his son. And it was rough around the edges, to say the least. But the one thing, the one thing that the young man got perfect was the eyes of the son. And as the Lord looked into the painting, he almost looked into the eyes of his boy, and he began to weep with gratitude. He immediately removed the Monet from the mantle and placed the son there in his place. And then he spent a few more hours talking about his son with the young man. The following day, the Lord reopened the manor on the hill to the public. And people would come for years, especially after the war, to view the art. And he would always end his tour with the story of his son and the young man who delivered the peace because it gave them a chance to see the world through the eyes of his son. Years later, the Lord on the manor on the hill would pass away. And with no heir, the art would go to auction. The art world was extraordinarily excited. The lists of paintings available to the public had collector head over heels for their big day. And when it came time, there were hundreds of people gathered in the main hall. The auctioneer made his way up to the podium and revealed the first piece in the bidding. And it was the picture of the sun. The art collectors were extraordinarily disappointed. Why open up an auction with a piece that wasn't even listed on the program? Something that didn't come close to the other things that hung from the manor on the hill. The auctioneer began, he said, let's start at 100 pounds. And then slowly, over the course of the next five minutes, with no one making a bid, it made its way all the way down to five. Because the fact was, no one wanted the son. However, one of the gardeners, the younger brother, was there. And he always admired the son. So when it got down to five pounds, he thought, why not? And he bid on the art. Going once, going twice, sold. The auctioneer hit the gavel on the table and then announced to the room that the auction was over. For it is written in the will of the Lord that whoever receives the Son gets it all. All the beauty that hung from the halls of the Lord on the manor on the hill went to the person who received the Son. The treasure we all desire, our own security, the security of the ones we love, real joy, real purpose, real friendship, all the things are found in the treasure of the sun. And when we chase after all those things of the world, we will find worry and anxiety and fear. It is only will be when we are in Jesus that the treasures we have all have sought will be found. For whoever receives the sun gets it all. For if you know Jesus, then you need not worry. The gospel is not good advice for your life. The gospel is a proclamation of victory, that the barn is full, that the king is on the throne. You need not tarry for salvation. It has been bought at a price on your behalf. For when your soul is required of you, when you go home to heaven, when we are at the great banqueting feast, the Father will say to you, soul, 
relax, eat, drink, and be merry. For my son Jesus has laid up ample goods for you in heaven, and it is my good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let us pray together. Father, you are a God who does not pity the fool, but in turn rescues him. Lord, you rescue us from desires that will literally kill us and gift us with desires and a relationship that we have desired ever since we were created in our mother's womb. Lord, the love that you offer, the security that you offer, the comfort that you offer, the joy that you offer is all found in Jesus. Lord, may we see the world through the eyes of your son. May we desire that our neighbors receive that same gift. And Lord, may we see you as the one true king. Lord, may we worship you and build your kingdom all the days of our life. In your son's name we pray, amen.